Welcome to season three of the Jesus of Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hello, Emily. I just heard a gurgle. And we're going to keep that, too, because oh I think that's that's the ASM, ASMR. Oh, yeah. People are into that now. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Mickey Mouse. That's not ASMR. I know, but it's like you're spe- the song was about spelling things, and so ASMR made me think of... Interesting. The leader of the da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, M-I-C-K. You get it? You don't get it. It's all right. I don't know. Maybe our listeners will get it. They totally will. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> welcome. You're something else today. <laughs> I am just, I didn't get it. I can't. I it's can't all right. Join I will try again that. next episode. Okay, try again. Um, I love, though, that you were trying to make some connections. That's, that's fun. We haven't been kind of in the studio. We've been doing so much virtual podcasting. Oh, and it's painful. It, it's hard, you know. It, we always try to see, we want to do video, even though we don't post the videos, we do try to see the faces of who we're connecting with, but it's it's always better to have it in person. And there's always technical issues, there's always somebody doesn't have the right oh, thing, or, or we can't something get on the... our end is lagging and latency and, you know, all the things. And so... We're actually all sitting in the same room today. We are. And I'm super excited um, because I followed our guest for a while, I think just through mutual friends. And well, she may have started following JSL too or Lovely. And so I, I started following her and just listening to some of the things she's putting out on Instagram in terms of education and um, allyship. And I'm really excited to have Abigail Ernesty on our show today. <laughs> and Abigail is with the Abolitionist Collective, and she really is an independent ally and activist for uh, human trafficking survivors. And so, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. I'm very excited for today. Yeah. And you drove all the way down from Dallas, had a little traffic. I did a little, <laughs> a little bit of traffic. I haven't been to Waco in a minute, so yeah. I forgot that like there's there's a lot of traffic hey, that comes this way. We're somehow we're becoming a really hot destination. Well, and we have, we do need to say like how grateful we are that you were even willing to do this because, I as I said a few minutes ago, you were um, a victim of such technical difficulties <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> of this podcast because we tried to do it last week. Online and it didn't work. Something was janky, and then we tried, well, we tried this, and we tried times. that, we had a and scheduling this, thing, and, that, and, then... and it just which tells us your story is that important. Yes, that the forces of evil mm-hmm. do not want your story out there. So we showed evil, and you came to Waco. <laughs> Very true. We were all just like, I was like, listen, I'll just come to Waco. Yeah, and then what, what's what's going to happen? We yeah. all in the same room. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's exciting. So, okay, I want you to just tell us who you are. Tell our mm-hmm. listeners where you're from, what you're all about. How did you wind up in this work? Give us some context. It's a good question. So my educational background is in intercultural studies and biblical theology and um, social justice. And so that really was birthed out of just how I grew up. My parents have been uh, missionaries for over 31 years. And so um, just I ended up kind of naturally caring a lot about cultures, caring a lot about how to embody the love of Jesus in cultures and social justice, which really came from watching a documentary about seven years ago that really changed the trajectory Mm. of my life. And I was just like, I left not the same. And since then, I've been serving locally in DOW and Minneapolis, St. Paul, and also in Southeast Asia globally, Mm -hmm. just working to combat um, trafficking and learning, doing a lot of learning, which has been such a blessing 
Mm -hmm. And on an average day, I can be found pretty much in any coffee shop (laughs) that there is. (laughs) That's where I like to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Reading stories and telling stories is really what makes my heart come alive. So Mm. that's a little bit. Are you familiar with the Enneagram? Yes. What number are you? I, I want to make you guys guess. Okay. 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 We'll come back to the end then, and let's see if we can figure it out. Okay. Because I'm kind of already I'm already leaning towards a direction. Okay. Oh, interesting. But I need to affirm it. Okay. Yes. We'll see. Because you guys, I, I listen to this podcast. It's dead. I'm dedicated about it. Oh, so, thank you. Yes, it That's comes fine. up on notification on my phone. I'm Sweet. like, I'm like here for it. So I feel like you guys can figure it out by okay. the end of this podcast. Okay, let's go. Challenge oh. accepted. Oh yes. my gosh, you already know our numbers then. So yes, I do. You know why? So I was like, he's so excited. <laughs> Um, he likes the challenge. Well, okay, so you grew up as a missionary's kid. Yeah. And you grew up in Africa. Mm-hmm. And so that process, I know a little bit about your story, but tell our listeners about that part of your story because it's really informative. Yeah. So I was born in East Africa, and like I said, my parents were missionaries there. And they already had four biological kids. They were serving. They didn't really have any intentions of expanding their family in any way. But um, just through my sister, quite honestly, begging for a little sister. And (laughs) um, they ended up doing what we would now call in America foster to adopt. It wasn't really that in 1995. They didn't Mm -hmm. have that terminology. But so, yeah, I ended up um, coming to be with them when I was two and spent my like have been with them ever since. Now, were they still in East Africa? Yes. Okay, so you didn't transplant immediately to the U.S.? No. Okay. So we were there for a minute, well, throughout my adoption process. Okay. So I was with them from a baby to two, and that was kind of that uh, stint of time that we were in East Africa. And were they missionaries in that region? Yes, they were. Okay. So we were all living in East Africa and then um, spent some time in Chicago. Mm. For a little bit, mm-hmm. I was kind of like part of my adolescence, and then went back to East Africa actually okay. when I was seven, and spent from seven to fifteen back in East Africa wow. with my parents. So, so what was yeah. that like? So that's what we call transracial adoption. Yeah. So what is that like mm. for you to be growing up in your home country, but you're being parented by an American family? Yeah, American white family. Yeah, it's very interesting. I I grew up in an environment to kind of paint the picture of um, my elementary school classes. There were usually 12 different nationalities in our class. Mm. So I feel like the commonality was the difference. We okay. were all oh. from all over the world. And so I grew up in an, an environment where as odd as it seems, like it was really normal because mm. there were a lot of other missionary families. There were a lot of other transracial adoptees. Mm. And so I grew up in an environment where we really, again, we had this appreciation for culture and, and what each person brought to the table and the differences in their experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think I grew up feeling that was really normal and my kind of like rude awakening to sort of the the tension of the intersectionality points was more when I came back to the States when I was like 15 and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this is a really different cultural grid. And what a, to. to come back in adolescence yeah. where so much, no matter where, you're living on the planet is a disrupting kind mm-hmm. of time hormonally and just physiologically. Yes. But to have that, that's, that's tough. Yeah, it definitely was. I, you can, I'm sure my parents can testify. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, yes, it was challenging. So yeah. you're, so you, did you go from birth to your adopted parents? Almost. You, so, or no, you said it too, right? Yeah. So I probably said that in a confusing way. Sorry about that. But I, so I was, I was born and I went from birth to an orphanage in East Africa and then from that orphanage to my adoptive parents. But my adoption wasn't like finalized until I was two. Okay. My reason for asking is you have zero accent. Yeah. So I'm trying to reconcile in my mind, you're born in East Mm. Africa, you live in East Africa, you sound like you're from East Waco. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I know that's something that people ask me a lot. They're like, I can't, you don't have an accent. And then a couple times, sometimes because of that stint in Chicago, Mm. people from Chicago will tell me I have a Chicago accent. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't don't think it's in East Waco. Well, I was just trying to be clever. I I wasn't 
putting her in East Waco. Okay, I was simply yeah. just just the set. You don't have like a southern draw. No, yeah. no, no, yeah, not at all. I'm yeah. sad because it's charming, but <laughs> don't be sad. <laughs> yeah. I like your accent, <laughs> but, but yeah. Did you speak the local language? Did you learn the local language? Not really. Like just okay. enough to pass the classes. I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm not gonna lie to you. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you, because in in East Africa in this part of East Africa, every most Africans speak five languages, anyways, mm-hmm. and so everyone speaks English. And because I was never immersed in like a village culture where I had mm-hmm. to learn like a local language, I I know it and I can hear it to this day. I can I kind of like know what people are saying, but I never had to like know it enough to get by. Mm-hmm. So then you just kind of your brain doesn't like think it's important. Yeah. So you don't, at least mine, I didn't retain it. So. Can I ask you a question that has nothing to do with this podcast? I'm just curious. Sure. Do you ever have dreams that you're speaking that language or do you have dreams of your, your village? Yes. Do you? Sometimes I do. I do. I'll have like a dream and be this is like so random, but like, yeah, I'll have a dream. I've had a lot of dreams that I like go back in mm-hmm. my like old age uh-huh. and I'm like with a bunch of kids and doing uh-huh. a bunch of stuff, which if 2020 wasn't the yeah. unprecedented year that it was, I would have actually spent a couple wow. months in East Africa. That was okay. kind of my next plan. So we'll see. I feel like eventually I will hopefully be back in East Africa. Yeah. Living there again. That would really be my, would be my desire in the long yeah. run. That's that's amazing. I have a, I have a friend who is East African so and cool. she uh, grew up here though. Mm-hmm. And so she will sometimes have dreams and in her dream, sometimes she's speaking a language that she actually wakes up and doesn't know what she's saying mm-hmm. or doesn't know what they're saying to her, but it's in her. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because she's from, and yes. I'm just, it's just She just so, told us that story. I know. So the other night. Well, the night of our fire. Yeah. We yeah. were talking about it. Uh-huh. But anyway, I just, yeah, nothing to do necessarily with the podcast, but I'm so fascinated. Just that embodiment of of being from somewhere and knowing it somewhere in your body, even mm. if it's not like prefrontal cortex knowledge, mm. you yeah. know, is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think mm. it has a lot to do. Like I think our cultures do stream like are inside of us. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So tell us how you, you saw a film seven years ago that changed your life. Can I ask what the film was? Yes. Very nefarious. The yeah. Merchant of Souls. Yeah. Exodus feel, Cry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super common one. It's on YouTube for free today. Yeah. People can watch it. Oh, today? Well, I think, I think just any, in general. Okay, yeah, yeah. Not like yeah. today. Right. Okay. <laughs> Only today. Yes. So I didn't know. I was like, I, yeah. If you're listening to this episode tomorrow, <laughs> no. too bad. So go to YouTube and you can <laughs> yes. look up Nefarious yeah, we'll and we'll put, put the link on there as well. It's a great one. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's, it gives a really good picture of the global, just the global commercial sex industry in general. And so I kind of knew a little bit about, I knew about it because growing up in East Africa, you see um, extreme poverty mm-hmm. as part of people's daily lives. And so I would oftentimes find myself um, playing with girls who had been in the slums and, and in East Africa, you know, that's like one of the second largest slums in the world. And mm-hmm. so a lot of their stories and narratives that they would tell me what they wanted to grow up to be was to go into prostitution. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're in fourth grade, you don't really understand, like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what does that really all entail? And so I knew bits and pieces of it, but it wasn't until I saw that documentary that I really started to understand all of the different intersectionalities of what was making these girls vulnerable to, to think that that was the only choice that they had, mm-hmm. that prostitution was really the only way out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about too what you have learned um, along the way about those vulnerabilities. Let's talk yes. about some of those vulnerabilities. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you do a lot of talking on your Instagram just regarding um, racial bias, regarding racial inequality, and how if we care about human trafficking, then we've got to care about all of these other issues too, right? It's kind of like you start pulling the thread and that's what happened to us. I mean, our oh, whole, our whole lives changed, mm. right? I mean, unraveled. It unravels everything. Like a runner everything. in pantyhose. That's yeah. who we are. Yeah, and so yeah. yeah, what, what? Um, let's yeah, just educate us a little bit on what mm. some of those vulnerabilities are and why we need to care. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's really, it is something that once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's been a continual just thing for me as I've journeyed on this to see, you know, the the intersections of structural oppression, poverty, Mm -hmm. homelessness, violence, abuse, you know, marginalization, 
racism, sexism, misogyny, and kind of how all of those things can conspire to create um, just like really large vulnerabilities for people. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's kind of the question of, of intersectionality of like, okay, how do these things collide? And I really love what law professor um, Kimberly Crenshaw says. She defines intersectionality really well. She says, quote, the oppression and discrimination resulting from the overlap of an individual's various social identities, which I think is really Mm. powerful as to powerful for us to think about because we all have different social identities, you know, the ones that race, class, gender, socioeconomic status. And, you know, in the case of the girls that I I played with, race and poverty were the two that were really colliding to create that vulnerability. Mm. And so I think those are really two common identities that we see that cause people to be vulnerable to commercial sexual exploitation. And I think when we really start to think about the collision of those two things, race race and and gender and sexual exploitation, really that collision creates a really unique vulnerability um, that really affects women of color and black women particularly. Mm. Okay, so let's rewind just a little bit. And in case somebody's listening just for the very first time, or maybe is new to the Jesus That Love podcast and what we're doing, we've mentioned human trafficking, we've mentioned sexual exploitation, we've mentioned prostitution, Let's define what that is. Let's do an overarching, what is sexual exploitation and where does human trafficking come into that? And what's human trafficking? Yes. So I, I use the definition of human trafficking to say human trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerabilities, both of the human heart and of the physical circumstances, which is like what I feel like is a really simple, concise way to put it. But there's also this sort of AMP model, mm-hmm. which you may have to help me with. I'm mm-hmm. trying to I think. It, yeah. It's almost like when it's when you know it so well, then you mm-hmm. don't know it. <laughs> yeah. But for sure, I think there's action means purpose. Yes. And action under action is mm-hmm. force, right? Um, kind of fit. No, that's the means. Oh, action wow. is is recruiting, harboring, transporting, or mm-hmm. providing, obtaining. Which does sound like force. I mean, obtaining a yes. person sounds pretty forceful to me. Yes. But it's it's the act of actually um, of getting, the act of receiving, the act of manipulation. Um, it's that first step is the act of trafficking, right? Yes. yes. And then we move on to means. Mm-hmm. Which is the force, the fraud, the coercion yes. piece. Right. Yeah. And then you have the purpose, which is for the purpose of commercial sexual exploitation, mm-hmm. or you could fit in, in under commercial sexual exploitation really is sex trafficking and prostitution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so in our world with JSL, I mean, when we started going into strip clubs, we didn't even know what commercial sex industry was. We we're like, we're going into a strip club. We're, you know, we'd heard stories of women and I was like, I want to get to know the women. And they have many, they have a thread of childhood sexual abuse. That's part of my story. I want to know them. It was really just this intuitive of, of the blind kind of going, there's something about her story that I intuitively know I need to understand. Mm. And as we went, we started putting language around it. We started gathering stories, gathering data, and we started recognizing, oh, okay, this is part of commercial sex exploitation, stripping, pornography, prostitution. And then probably somewhere around 2007, 2008, we learned about human trafficking. Mm. And we learned about how it was kind of covert in the commercial sex industry and how it was like, no, it's legal to strip. No, we're doing a legal business here. But if a woman's in there and she is turning over all of her money to her quote boyfriend and she doesn't get to self-determine what she wants to do, if she's being controlled by a third party, that's human trafficking. Um, And especially in the case of a minor, we know now. Well, and even some club situations back in the day, we found, you know, women would go on break Right. And when they would go on break, they're going to do a service outside of the club. Right. When they come back, half that money right. goes, went to the club. Went to the club. So then the club then became this organizer, this third party that was controlling. But there were no laws in our state that was mm. that was really going to hold strip clubs accountable for where they exploited and 
really, it was extortion. Well, but to be be fair to the state of Texas, when they enacted the poll tax law Mm -hmm. is when they also put in the law that going on break was no longer legal. Right, but then how so do you when enforce you're in, it? Right, right. It, but it's all about it's enforcement. All about it. Yeah, how do you? Who's overseeing those? Nobody's overseeing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of an overview of you know, and one of the questions we always get asked is, and and one of the biases probably that I believed was was that you know this this was a choice, and that 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 women wanted to be doing this, that these were scandalous women who just really desired to take their clothes off for men every night um, or to service them through acts of prostitution and, and sex acts. And so those were all biases that had to be confronted in my naivety um, and ignorance. And it really was a wake-up call to learn what are we talking about when we're talking about choice. Yes. I have a a quote that I love from a survivor from East Africa where I grew up. And she said, a choice is only a choice if you have choices. Mm. And I think it's really powerful because we, I think in the Western world, we so don't, most of us don't understand what it even is to not have good choices Mm. in front of us at all times, different ones. But the reality of being placed in a position where you don't really even have choices Mm -hmm. Um, I think is something we all have to dare to imagine when we're starting to understand these different intersectionalities that make people vulnerable to exploitation. What do you think is a great way to explain to, because I'm still trying to figure this out too, to the people that are, that keep saying, well, she chose that, you know, they, Mm. I I hear it all the, or even with the guys that I work with on the, on the demand side, well, you know, this, that she chose to be the prostitute. Why am I getting penalized? I was just helping her out. How do we help those people understand that sometimes this industry has actually chosen them? Mm. Yeah. They didn't choose it. It chose them. Mm. Yeah. I think it comes in those collection of vulnerabilities. Like when we really look at who is marginalized, who's being exploited and who is buying. And I think that's when we see that divide of power Mm -hmm. of right that people who are, I think, I mean, you would know this better than I would, Brett, but the there's 85 percent of buyers on one Internet study were white, married, upper middle to upper socioeconomic Mm -hmm. status men. And the people who are being bought are by by and large women of color from marginalized Mm -hmm. communities and backgrounds. So we have to ask ourselves, like interesting like what is going on there and I think we just have to ask more questions about when someone is living through these different vulnerabilities what does that look like for them not to have options and Mm -hmm. I think we also then have to deal with the sort of like entitlement that men feel to women's bodies of Mm -hmm. like oh this isn't a problem like if she is here, then that's fine. And so I think there's like all these different pieces, right? It's hard to mm-hmm. give like one answer because there are all these different lanes you kind of have to meet in the middle. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's getting folks, it's it's almost like, the at least the folks I talk to, it's like they, they just don't want to engage their brains to even think about vulnerabilities. Mm. It's like, oh, they're in poverty. How is that a vulnerability? Said one <laughs> Said person, person who's never who's been not, in poverty. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's, you know, how do you, I want to, I want to figure out how to graciously help. Like I've been helped mm-hmm. to, I mean, even in my own life, I, I, I realize I have had some misunderstandings about vulnerabilities that have caused me to say really harmful things and not even realize it. Mm-hmm. But yet here I am white, white guy, I'm at the top of the chain. So mm-hmm. I'm not impacted by any of that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. In my own mm-hmm. experience. And so I have to figure out how do I take the time to educate myself on these issues and almost be, I have to embrace humility and Mm -hmm. guess what, Brett, you don't know everything. Yeah. And and you don't know every experience and proximity grants perspective. And what Brett and I both realized is that had, had God not led us into this lane, we would be lacking a perspective because we would not have been proximate to this issue And whether or not you realize you're impacted, every person's impacted by this. Every person, your bottom line, your tax dollars, even if you are quote top of the food chain, um, you're, you're being impacted by what's happening in your community and by what's happening in your healthcare system and what's happening in your taxpayer dollars. You are, 
mm-hmm. regardless of, and, and to say that you care about prospering communities, you can't care about economic growth and economic capacity and not also care about social capacity because the two are, go hand in hand. Which, which why, why are people, why, why are some people so adversarial against trying to understand these issues? Because they want to protect their comfort and their power and and the irony of it is that the more they try to possess control protect the worse the fallout gets on them too mm. Mm. the the worse we all get the worse the worse it all gets yeah wow so when so going from talking about a choice isn't a choice if you don't have choices. Was mm-hmm. that the quote? Yeah. What mm-hmm. a good one. A choice is not a choice if you don't have choices. So an, one of my professors um, talked to, I took a poverty class at, at Baylor, and it's part of what got me so engaged in understanding mm-hmm. the, the vulnerabilities in our own community in Waco. And she said, poverty is powerlessness. Mm. So there we see that like lack of choice. You know, so what are some of the vulnerabilities as you've researched this, as you've have lived experience in some of these issues globally? Yeah. Well, I think that that one with uh, poverty is powerlessness is such an important point to make. And I think that it it stands alongside this idea, right, of of that was sort of the story that I walked through to help Mm -hmm. me see, like, there's something going on here with like. There's not there's a lack of a capacity to dream because of the lack of choices, yeah. um, and that's I think what the maybe the saddest part of the intersection of the vulnerabilities is the reality that it steals people's ability to dream of something mm-hmm. different and of something more. But I think a, a great example is homelessness, mm. um, and I think that is one that we see oftentimes um, when we're looking at vulnerabilities as well. Um, yeah, home is home is base when we look at the hierarchy of of needs, right? It yeah. is yeah, food, shelter, yep, for sure. And I think it's a good example too to deal with that intersectionality of race mm-hmm. and also vulnerabilities, you know, different ones. And so we know that that's an example because of black people, they have this um, compounded, the historical and the structural racism come into play when we look at homelessness. So historical and structural. Yes. Okay. So break those down if if people are listening. Mm -hmm. So historical means there's history there. Absolutely. Historically, black people have been marginalized. Structural is... Absolutely. Structural is the way that our systems are in place Mm -hmm. um, in society. And I can say just looking for an apartment right now Mm. um, as a black woman in DFW, it's very interesting sometimes Mm. going in. And I've like tested this theory of like if I go in and tour, how much they tell me they want as a down payment versus if I like send in like one of my white friends. And you you can see the disparities of like them being like, asking me for way more financially as a down payment than they'll ask my white friend for. And I think it's really, I mean, that's, that is structural and historical racism. It is. And it's wrong. It is. It's just wrong. And it's 2021. And this is the reality that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Law, structural laws that prevent it. I mean, we're talking about redlining. We're talking about all of the real estate laws, 40 acres and a mule. We're talking about all the Reconstructionist era. I mean, the history and the structures set against black people are, are there. It's undeniable. But you know, <laughs> even in even in your own experience, I mean, that's not even law. That's just this person is yeah. Today, this it's individual not law. is right. Is, is a racist is the one who's saying mm, you're black right. and you're a woman, and so I'm going to need more from you than mm. oh those white people because mm. surely they've got it together. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's like what you said, like with redlining. It's mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's where it's it's the combination of all of those things. Like, mm-hmm. so what is historic? Maybe there's something with redlining, like you said. Mm-hmm. What is structural? What's the system? Mm-hmm. Then we have individuals, and mm-hmm. so 
it's this conglomerate of things to think about like, okay, so systematic housing discrimination, mm-hmm. you know, that was supported by the federal government decades mm-hmm. ago, but clearly it's still affecting people like me today. And it's a root, you know, it's one of the root causes of that central wealth gap between mm-hmm. house, white households and households of color. You know, and redlining was always meant to to discourage the economic investment mm-hmm. that people make when they have a mortgage or when they get a business loan in black and brown neighborhoods. And so we know that that, you know, 13% of the general popul- population accounts for 40% of the people that are experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. And we know that oftentimes when women and girls are experiencing homelessness, that they'll engage in survival sex just right. to like meet their basic needs. Yeah. And so it's just one of those ways that we see like a massive gap in vulnerability, yeah. like what we've been talking about. Mm. So you've just proven right there when someone says, well, they've got the same opportunity I do. Mm. It, in fact, is not reality Yeah, in the United States of America in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you say that historic, when we talk about historical and structural uh, racism mm. in the U.S., how would you say you first encountered this coming mm. home or, or coming, you were home, coming from East Africa to the U.S.? Did you have an encounter that you kind of went, oh, my gosh, uh, this wasn't the case over in East Africa? Did you hear about it? Were you warned or was it just a, a rude wake up call or, or yeah. what was that like? I think I didn't necessarily, I didn't hear about it. I wasn't really like prepare, prepare for racism. It's about to change, you know, because we have to kind of think about, you know, all over the world, there are different isms, right. That Mm -hmm. really are about stealing, you know, power from people who are marginalized. So there's tribalism in Africa. Uh There's, there's different hierarchies and systems, but I don't think I was prepared for racism really in, and because I didn't know what it looked like. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know the difference between, I knew what overt racism was, but I don't think I understood all the levels of covert racism. Mm -hmm. And so when I first came back, I, I really didn't experience it in a way that I understood. A lot of it was in commentary I think from people of what they expected of me or didn't expect of me or sort of the role they expected me to play. And I think a lot of times um, as black women, we experience something where we we feel like there's kind of three typical societal roles that we can play. Mm. We can kind of be the Manny, the person who's taking mm. care of everyone, mm. who's like a very common, I think we can all picture someone in our mind from a mm. movie who fulfills mm-hmm. this role. Um, And then we think about the seductress, right? We Mm. think about the person who is kind of like the more sexual, sensual idea of a black woman. It's Mm. very hypersexualized. And then we kind of think of what we call like the sapphire, the sassy black woman. Mm. And so I think Mm. when you... So can I list three? Yeah. Because this is from from a white perspective, just as you were talking me through that. I was like, oh my gosh, yes. So when I thought of the first archetype mm. the the manny the mm-hmm. the help yeah i thought of the help yeah i thought of the movie the help mm-hmm. and how white oriented that even that movie was mm. um it's not listed on black history or um on netflix it's not one of the shows they recommend for you to watch it's probably good and <laughs> then number 2 when you said the over sexualized i thought of the color purple and sug avery mm. i thought of that character and then number three, the sapphire, Claire Huxtable, mm-hmm. all the way. Oh, Claire. Yeah, the the yeah. sassy, you're, I'm not taking this from you, you know, um, I just, yeah, that's yeah. so fascinating because just as you were talking me through that, I'm like, yes, yes, I have been conditioned to see black women in these three very archetypal ways. And it's it's interesting because you sort of, you figure out, as you're like looking at how life is going, that you need to fit yourself into one of those in order to be accepted or even to just be liked. And mm. so I think you have to figure out what that is. And it's very interesting when you're navigating evangelical Christian culture mm. because there's one of those that obviously is more enjoyed than the others, which is the person that takes care of everyone. Right. Because so, it's not good to be sexual, yeah, right? No. <laughs> you got to turn that down. For sure. And then to be too strong in evangelical Christian culture, right? Yeah. Not real sure how we feel about women. Absolutely. There. <laughs> so I think that is where you 
I think we all have experienced moments in our lives where we shrink ourselves Mm -hmm. to sort of fit into a mold Mm. that feels like comfortable and safe. Mm. And so I really think that those archetypes are really just the modes in which black women have felt comfortable and safe to try and navigate Mm -hmm. sort of what is the, the end of the historical piece of, of like all of us, um, how to say this, Mm. the trickle down effect of the Uh historical piece Uh of what all of us have experienced throughout obviously Mm -hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. So you weren't given a a guide. No. Do you, was there a moment? Yes. Okay. So to a moment, I this is it was actually I think a byproduct of the environments that I grew up in was that I really was insulated. And this happens a lot to transracial adoptees because we grow up um, underneath the protection of the privilege that our white parents have. Mm. So like, right, if I'm experiencing something that's getting a little off and my dad walks into the room, then Mm. like, obviously everything kind of goes back to what it was Mm. because you get shielded by your parents' privilege. And so I think I missed a lot of things Mm. that, that typically I think a lot of black people in America experience much younger. But I did. I was in a small town, the town that my um, parents grew up in. We were visiting family right before I actually drove to go to college. Mm. And I was just chilling with my friend. I was on the phone walking around the neighborhood. Um, and it was, it's a, I mean, it's a very tiny town um, in, in the north. And I was out there and all of a sudden my aunt like came running down her driveway and was like, my neighbor called the police. And I was like, is wow. everyone okay? Like, what's going on? <laughs> Why are they going like, like, what are you talking about? And um, she's like, he said, there's a black woman walking around the neighborhood soliciting people for money. And I was like, mm. sorry, what? <laughs> wow. And so I'm freaking out because yeah. I'm yeah. like, well, that's not true. But now it's like a, a you know, a he said, yes. she said situation. And also that's a problem. Like you can get in big trouble for that. And so I'm thinking, I'm about to go to college. What's going to happen to my life? And so, you know, it was a very traumatizing experience, to be honest, to be like subjected to a line of questioning and really put through this whole thing when it was like an obvious and outright lie. And so I call that experience like the night a racist called the police. Mm. And it's really just one of those moments, which I feel like in the times we're living in now, we're gifted with these videos where we watch these encounters happen. Yeah. Um, and so it's making everyone more aware that racism is happening and that it's very real. Yeah. But for me, that was a pivoting moment. And I think it was, you know, just on the cuffs of me kind of coming outside of being underneath my parents' wing mm-hmm. and realizing I'm about to experience something that I have never experienced before. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like unprepared for that moment Mm. of how do I enter the world as a black woman? What does it look like to be, you know, gracious and kind to people, Mm. but also to live? Yeah. (laughs) Right. So it was, it was definitely, that was the moment for me where I was like, wow, this Mm. is going to be interesting. Did the cops show up? Oh yeah, for sure. And so you did have to, you had, they questioned you. Yeah. And you had to Mm -hmm. defend yourself right on the spot because they're already assuming yeah. Guilt. Mm-hmm. Was your aunt with you still or what? No, it was a really interesting situation in this. Yeah. So I, I, I did, I had to stand there. I was, I did like an hour of like on the sidewalk questioning. Just like Unreal. Really um, unpleasant. And my aunt wasn't there. And eventually later on, my dad came out um, of the house and was like, what's going on? But I think there was a, I think we were all sort of unprepared for, the reality of mm. my blackness to be visible. Uh, uh-huh. And I think that that happens a lot in transracial adoption where there's a, there's a, the family sort of forgets the family sort of, uh-huh. you might not forget, but the family sort of forgets because uh-huh. it's so, you're one of us. Yeah. You're one of us. Yeah. Which is, which is not a bad thing in, uh-huh. in the sense of love and in like, there's no difference in, in this piece, but there is a difference. And so I think that sometimes you can have those moments, even in friend groups. I know yeah. that that I've had those moments where I'm like, we gotta, we gotta think about, think through what we're about to do here a little bit differently because yeah. this is a this is a piece. And and my friends have discovered and they know from whatever it is, whether it's you know the apartment hunting or whether mm-hmm. it's leaving the grocery store and having to get out a receipt or whatever mm-hmm. it is, like these different pieces that they've started to notice. And I think 
I think a lot of people just feel ill-equipped of what do I do Mm -hmm. in those moments. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. Go to the grocery store and get out a receipt. Oh, yeah. I didn't say that super well. But like when you're leaving the grocery store, do you ever leave? Like when you leave Costco, you have to show your receipts. But like if you're just leaving Target or if you're just leaving Walmart and you have to like show your receipt. Yeah. Uh You don't have to do that. Because they don't trust you that you Uh didn't steal anything. Uh Uh-huh. God, those make me so mad. This makes me so yeah. mad. Yeah. Wow. I have some eight friends that are like. Yeah, they're about to go in there. No. You want to see, you want to see my receipt? <laughs> yeah. You want to see my receipt? <sighs> yeah, we've gotten some confrontations where they're like, excuse me, can I see the manager, please? Yes. Oh. Yes. Um, those vulnerabilities, when we're talking about living among uh, racist structures um, and then certain communities perhaps um, embody more racism. I know in the South, I mean, it's much more prevalent here. Although the North doesn't get a pass, I am learning a little more about my Northern <laughs> brothers and sisters who who were, quote, on the right side of history that still still did those things. So it's like, well, we're not, we're going to make sure they can't get into our colleges, Ivy mm-hmm. League. We're going we're gonna to make sure we keep the, the people that we want in power in power. And um, so I know they're not completely exempt, but certainly there are environments that feel and, and, and are, um, have more of a propensity toward racism in a community. For instance, one of the ways you can look at that is you can look at laws. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can look at your state's laws. You can look at the data on the Census Bureau and you can look at those numbers and you can see homelessness since we're talking about homelessness. Okay, so what families, how does this break down in ethnicities and where you see majority black, majority Latino, majority, you know, that are homeless or that are facing chronic poverty, then why aren't... Who's not serving them, right? Yeah. And and while a city may not want to say we're a racist city or, or whatever, collectively what we're noticing now is there's an ignorance. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I have to look at my ignorance as part of upholding racism. So any time where I've given oversight, whether it's like you're saying not overt, but maybe it's just covert, right? Mm -hmm. It's still racist because it's still not doing something. It's not doing anything. And as long Mm -hmm. as we're just like towing the status quo while more female women of color are being trafficked and being propositioned and being, or, or, or are homeless or advertised or sold and bought for sex and I'm not doing anything about it. And my city's not doing anything, and my state's not doing anything to protect and provide for women of color and their children, then that's a structural problem. That that's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is. And I think it's we're all in this in this moment of right, like the problem isn't white people. The problem is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. The problem is the structures. Mm-hmm. And I think we have all been on this journey to sort of um, to see the whole picture of how we got here. Um, and I think that that is part of understanding a little bit more of like the historical piece of how, how are we here and what yeah. really has happened. So I do want to share some more with Let's about that. that with you guys of just like, how did we get here? Yes. I, I think that our audience needs to know, you know, we look at history, it informs so much and it helps us make sense of what we're currently um, looking at. And one of our history professors that we know that we'll have on a podcast later, Beth Barr, she told me, she said, it's so much easier for us to look at history because we've lived through it and we're not as threatened by it. So when we talk about really hot button issues that are real time, that are present right now, a lot of people get offended and a lot of people don't want to talk about it because we're living in it. But if we can look at the same situation from the past we would go, oh my gosh, that's so wrong. That's so immoral. That's so unethical. We shouldn't have done that, right? And so it helps us to look at history because it informs where we go from here on out. Yeah. So yeah, talk to us about it. Absolutely. So when we look at the history of you know the United States, we see that sexual exploitation really began alongside colonization 
with Christopher Columbus. So in the 1500s, you know, we see in history, we can, you can go look this up, which I can actually link it for you guys that so you can see this, but mm-hmm. people can read the letter that he wrote to the nurse of Prince John, which said, mm-hmm. quote, a hundred, I'm going to say this wrong. So sorry to all the people who, all my Latino friends, um, Calestinos are easily obtained for a woman mm-hmm. or for a farm. And it is very general. And there are plenty of dealers who are to go about looking for girls. Those from nine to 10 are in high demand. And so, end quote. And you'd think like, okay, what is what is he saying? And he's really saying that as early as the 1500s, we really have records of white men colonizing women of color's bodies. Yeah. And so as we think about colonization, we know we re- really can't ignore the abuse that started with Native women and girls. Yes. Um, and how much they've really endured for centuries. I just always think it's it's so important to bring a light to that. Um, and kind of like I said, my parents have a, a missional background, and so I've grown up for years um, learning and understanding translation and languages. And so I think it's super vital to note that before colonization, Native women and girls didn't even there wasn't even a word in Indigenous languages for prostitution or rape. So it was so absent from their culture that they didn't even have language for it. There mm. was no need for a language for it. Mm. And so I think just to really acknowledge. Um, like what the violence that colonization truly brought mm. um, when Christopher Columbus came to what we now mm-hmm. know as the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think when, and we, we, we've talked a little bit about this, but just, you know, men feeling entitled to women of color's bodies, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how that really only increased with colonization. Mm-hmm. We can go back and see the sea logs from early history that White fathers often trafficked their mixed race Hawaiian children to sea captains for sex. And you mm. can go and like read the history logs and see there would be like mutinies because mm-hmm. they weren't being sold enough girls mm-hmm. um, to have sex with. And we all know, right, about you know the people who were trafficked from West, um, West and Central Africa who were being bought over for slavery, mm-hmm. but we don't really know. I think that that was happening actually at five times the rate. They were wow. being trafficked for sex than they were being trafficked for labor. Wow. And so again, you know, that mindset of of entitlement and the demand really to buy women and girls, particularly black women and girls, um, started really in the 1600s and mm-hmm. what we call the quote, fancy girl trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are really our first records we have of uh, a systematic, you know, um, mm. selling of women and girls, black women and girls. So mm. black women and girls would be sold predominantly light skinned preteens, um, in commercial sexual exploitation in the United States. And this term was used in, you know, fancy girls was used in the 19th century to describe, um, a woman who was of childbearing age and, um, was sold by her, Mm-hmm. slave owners and handlers, which are like traffickers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term fancy is actually because they would say like forever long he fancied. Mm. And so I think if we if we can all picture like women being dressed up by slave owners, um, we have, you know, history records that show they would adorn them with gold earrings, that if they had scars, they would cover them in wax mm. and they would cover them in oils, that they would feed them a lot extra for a few days so that they would appear healthier. Mm. And that this was actually the highest money maker um, next to strong men who were able to do hard labor. And that it even a lot of times would be the higher money maker, um, mm. this selling of women and girls, and that they were being abused not just by the slave owners, but by their handlers and all these different people. And that's really the beginning of, of trafficking. Domestic yeah. in, in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the things that my friend has brought to several friends of mine who, who know the work of justice, of anti-racism work, and how it overlaps with anti-trafficking and anti-exploitation work. Um, I think one of the things that has been heartbreaking and has been um, just oh, maddening is when we look at the stories that you just told us and we look at the facts and we recognize if we know anything about epigenetics and how trauma is passed down, then it makes perfect sense that it would be really hard for black women 
to trust white men, white women, even just intuitively in their in their bodies, even if they'd had some good experiences with, with white culture, right? That somewhere passed down in the DNA is this trauma. And you, there is a fallout because of that. I mean, PTSD, as we see, being passed down from generation to, to the third and fourth generation, typically. I mean, it is real. It's not... Um, yeah, it's not, it's not a mystery. I think we can look at the data to prove that the fallout is real. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's, it's so much a part of the, of what your DNA witnesses, you know, you might not have the language for it, but it is that historical trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that that we have to acknowledge how that affects the mind and the body and the psyche. Mm -hmm. And, I think when we think about sexual exploitation and trafficking, you know, that happened to Native communities, Black communities. It is. It's, it lives in, even if an individual hasn't experienced that today or that, um, that you know, subjugation of racism today, mm-hmm. it's their DNA witnesses it. Yes. And so I think we have to notice that in what, when we're looking at all of these different vulnerabilities Mm, and when mm. we're looking at the healing of someone who's coming out of this Mm -hmm. and just the healing of ourselves, I think as black and brown Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. um, not trying to fight that, but actually really witnessing it Mm. and listening to your body and, and working to heal that. Yes. And write a different story. Mm, That's so good. What do you think that, you know, um, as we look at work in terms of survivor leadership now in anti uh, exploit in, in abolitionist work um, the majority of victims the majority of vulnerabilities are women of color persons of color and yet we don't see survivors uh, of color who are doing most of the leading out right like we've talked about yeah why Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I I think because it doesn't fit the narrative that we have, the public has been sold about trafficking. Mm. I think the public is still really invested in the narrative of a white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired little girl who's mm. being trafficked, and she's in like a cage, mm-hmm. and like that is what is still the sensationalism that oh, I think the anti-trafficking movement is trying to fight. Mm -hmm. And so because we have told the public that's who's being trafficked Mm. and we feel like that's what's getting our funding, that's Mm. what's supporting our organizations, it serves us the most, right, to then give the mic to someone who looks like that Mm. and fits that narrative. Um, Because we haven't really addressed the historical realities of what right has been passed down and then the marginalization of who is being trafficked really the most today. Mm. Um, and that is, like you said, it's, it's black women and girls and women of color. And Mm -hmm. so I think that we are not, we're not giving the mic over because we haven't really told the whole truth Mm. about the story. Mm. And I think that that is, that's just what I continue to see. And it, it is challenging. And it's something that I would really love to see shift in the mm-hmm. anti-trafficking movement. Um, and I and we can all do our part in that in small ways. You know, I think as allies, we try and give our, our if there's an opportunity for someone to speak, I think we try to hand that first to survivors. I think that's being a, a humble mm-hmm. ally is, is deferring to the survivor voice whenever we yeah. can. And I think that you know, that what's how survivors can work that out in their own community of, okay, how do I hand the the mic to the most vulnerable person mm-hmm. in, in the room, the most vulnerable survivor in the room, so we can begin to really challenge people's perspective on who's who's really being trafficked and really challenge the narrative too, I think, of the of the healing journey. Yeah. Of, you know, what does that look like? Because I think there's a success story that sells and then there is the reality of the the day in and the day out work mm-hmm. that it is to truly heal continually from your trauma over a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, which can be said, I think, of, of any of us, not just yeah. survivors of trafficking. But right. Yeah. You know, I think I'm, I'm wondering, what, what do you think the future of anti-trafficking work looks like? What's the pivot? What's the turn? 
you know, because I kind of feel like in 2007, there was this really interesting shift and, and like this awakening. I don't know what it was. I mean, we were experiencing it here. It, it was just this move of like, we started connecting with people going, oh, you're doing this work. You're doing outreaches to clubs. You're reaching out to women in pornography. Oh, human trafficking. And there was this move that started happening. It seemed like in 2007, 2008, 2010, there was a for sure move toward it. But it was really awareness. It was like, this is happening and it's happening in America and education and learning what it was. What's going to be the future? If, yeah. the, if the reality is the most vulnerable among us are persons of color, then what are organizations going to have to do to pivot? Yeah. I think it's really, we, we have to kind of move past. So I, I, I exist, you know, in an evangelical Christian culture structure. I love Jesus. And so I, I almost think as the example that comes to my mind is the example of sort of like the church panel, like a couple times a year where mm. we do like a panel and we have like people of color come on or like post the racial tensions of 2020, mm. we have like a panel and then it's like, bye, see you later. Uh-huh. It was nice to hear from you. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think we have to, in the anti-trafficking movement, we have to work to like move people into positions of power. Amen. Which requires like sacrifice. Yeah. And I think that is where we, that's where it gets sticky, right? Is like when we are actually asking someone to leverage their privilege or position to like ask another person to come in and serve. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is what the anti-trafficking movement is going to have to dream about Mm. is if we're going to really be relevant to the people who are being trafficked, if we're really going to make a dent in exploitation that changes history, Mm because I think that's the goal, right? Like Mm -hmm. to shift the trajectory of the futures of our children, of Mm -hmm. the world. I mean, that that's the, you know, the united thing in nations across the world. And I think it's going to require us to really say, okay, who isn't at the table? And I think that sitting at the table, I'll oftentimes think like, who isn't at the table? And a lot, a lot of times it's Asian Americans. I'm like, where, where are the Asian American leaders? You know, where are the Latino leaders? Like there are many experiences of people of color. It's not just black people. How do we really make sure that everyone is at the table? And I think that that requires us to be humble in the fact that we're willing to serve, we're willing to open the doors. I think that sometimes it can feel like it's just, we get comfortable. We get in our Mm -hmm. ruts. We know who's on the call. We're not really thinking about Mm -hmm. who's not on the call. You know, Mm -hmm. we're just sort of doing our, doing the thing, you know, we don't think about how do we expand and Mm. give and invite in. And, and really I am where I am today because a survivor leader let me come and Mm -hmm. shadow her and, Mm -hmm. and live life alongside her and brought me to things that I never would have had the opportunity Mm. to do without Mm -hmm. the fact that she was a survivor leader and she was willing to bring me along as her Mm -hmm. team and willing to invite me into this world at Mm. this deep of a level. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to really start thinking about like, who's already in my space, who's hungry to learn to do anti-trafficking work and how do I leverage my Mm. position to bring them in Mm -hmm. and to really give them what I have. Yeah. And which I think re- requires a mindset too of abundance, yeah. right? Because we right. we start to think like, oh, I got to guard my, you know, what I have. I'm not going to have enough. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so it does require, I think, a lot of self-work to, mm. to recognize like, I'm not getting replaced. My seat at the table isn't getting replaced because I'm inviting other people on. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to have to dare to imagine a really inter- like intercultural yes. group of people at the table if we're going to start addressing the vulnerabilities that are really hitting the marginalized communities. I think that's going to be critical, that partnership with those people who have influence in their communities. Yes. And I think too, what we've seen is that you, you've got to collaborate. I think that education is one piece for Mm -hmm. sure, but then you've got to collaborate with people who are already proximate to the issues of poverty in your community. The other organizations who are dealing with, whether it's um, gang violence, whether it's addiction, whether it's chronic homelessness, um, you've got to partner with those agencies because those are your people. Those yes. are the people who are most vulnerable. So you can't just 
shout out that you're all about anti-trafficking work and you're just looking for the one woman in the hotel or on the online ad, right? Mm -hmm. Because now she's actually in the low-income apartments doing webcam work. Mm-hmm. And and she's vulnerable, and now she's entertaining men coming, in and now the kids are vulnerable, and so who's reaching the low income apartments? You know, so I think that's been kind of the the awakening that we've had is that the the prevention of of exploitation and trafficking is doing justice. Yes, you know, it is abolitionist work. The microloans, the bringing up economic capacity to grow and increase that um, ability for survivors to own their own, you know, to, to be responsible for their own wages, to earn a fair wage is so important um, so that they do have choices, right? Yeah, so it's not absolutely. Power. Absolutely. And I think it's that collaboration that's really going to turn the tide. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really my hope is to see us really begin to address the different things because there's so many vulnerabilities and, but they do all, a lot of them come from poverty and yeah. a lot of them come from lack of access to service services and all of these different pieces. So for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So that was my one question is what, what is the future? What are, what are some other things that you just, as we kind of wrap, what do you want to leave? What are some things that you're like, I really want to leave your listeners with this information as they move forward concerning racial equity and the issue of, of human trafficking. Yeah. I think we have to, I think we have to recognize that the commercial sex industry is a structure of oppression Mm -hmm. and that, you know, a lot of what is predicated on gender, right. Um, gender inequity being that the majority of buyers are men. Mm -hmm. The majority of the women are the people that are in the commercial sex industry. And we have to begin to acknowledge how, you know, the racial piece plays into that, Mm -hmm. um, and have those conversations and know that that that's, that's been a part of the historical reality of domestic trafficking, like since Christopher Columbus, Mm -hmm. like we talked about. So my desire is that we would, we really be, the solution, and mm-hmm. we would really begin to address those intersectionalities, mm-hmm. and we would begin to to care well for mm-hmm. um, the people who are surrounding us who have racial difference. I think it's so important to think about how we're serving a person's healing, just mm-hmm. as important of, of how we're intervening in in the difficult times in their lives to give them more choices. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it's it's equally important on both ends. Um, and I think when I when I mean like serving healing, I think a lot of times people come into restoration, um, whether that's a, a shelter, or a home, or a drop in, and and people of color, I mean, and mm. they might be like, oh, there's not really anything here for me. Like mm-hmm. this doesn't really have any like mm-hmm. hair products that I would use, <laughs> right? Or like <laughs> right anything like you feel equally mm. out of place. And I yeah. think that um, if we are gonna call people into a space of of love and inclusion, then I think we have to really think about how we're going to do that and Mm. do it well um, so that we truly do offer an opportunity for people to dream again. Mm. That's so good and so beautiful. Also, we need to check to make sure we've got the hair products. For sure. (laughs) Because (laughs) that has been brought up before and I'm like, oh, you're right. Like That's why the voices are so important to bring to center, all the voices, because you don't know what you don't have. If you're not listening. Yeah, for sure. You know? And it's fun. I mean, it's just one of those things that you, I know a lot of people just don't, they wouldn't no. think of. Yeah. Yeah. They'd just be like, what? Right. Yeah. So for sure. I think it is really important. And it ministers to people. Like oh, it, 100%. It, it ministers to their heart. You see me. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I. Do you know? I know. Do you know? I totally know. Okay, I'm between some numbers. We're going back to this Enneagram. I totally know. Oh, my God. And I'm sticking to my guns. I think y'all are going to know. Really? I, I do. Okay. I feel like I'm a giveaway, but maybe are you? not. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying, Brett? Uh, I think she's a four. I said four, too, but are you? Really? Are you a two? <gasps> I'm a one. Are you a one? Yes. <gasps> oh, my goodness. I'm wrong. That's... Okay, I'm really, you're wrong, but you know what? The four and one connect a lot. I was going to say, what that really means is I'm on the high side of my stress right now. (laughs) (laughs) Abigail's like, you saw me in stress. It's okay. I was like, the traffic, this is, we we have to record. (laughs) 
No, I think I thought four just because of your inclusion and the the bigness of your ideas. Mm. You're really smart. You really see this bigger picture, which ones do too. A lot of ones are very visionary. But um, man, that's exciting. Yeah. I like meeting other well, ones. And to, Me too. I'm just going to put it out there. I, I initially thought one because you came in with a hat on. Oh, is that a one thing? I don't. I mean, I'm wearing a hat, but not, not everybody. That cute. Not everybody wears a cute hat. And yeah. I thought, okay, she wants to be different. She <laughs> so you be, thought four? She because wants of to that? be unique. Well, then when she first, oh. then she started talking. I thought, yeah, oh yeah, I'm on. I'm I'm on the four. And then I start hearing her story, and I'm like, well, of course she wants to be unique. She's adopted, and you know, she wants to, <laughs> you know. Set her place here in this family. I'm like, I'm oh, like, I am so right about four. <laughs> oh my gosh, and I'm, like I'm totally sold. wrong. Yeah, I love. But it's that. okay. I mean, I like <laughs> fours. So I, don't know. I like. Fours. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my yeah. gosh. Well, I love so meeting fun. other ones. They say they say ones like to buddy up and connect. Oh yeah, because yeah. we're like reformation. Yes, I know. Yeah, y'all want to buddy up and I'm ready. put out your list yeah. of rules. Yeah, yes. we get pretty Which, intense. Okay, what's interesting, I don't know how deep you guys have gone into the Enneagram, is I am the counter type of one. Okay. So I am a little bit different than a typical one. So a lot of times people don't guess one. Okay. Because right. it's like in your subtypes if you really yeah. do deep Enneagram Yeah, I know theory. subtypes. So, yeah. So it's the... What's your subtype? So the counter type, it's called sexual yeah. or intimate. Yeah, so, one to one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's considered the counter type. And you present sometimes like an eight. Yes. In, in a strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And boldness. I've been sometimes. told that. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think I'm a one to one subtype as well. Yes. Um And although my social has come up a lot, my least is self-preserving. Yeah. I could do, I, I've had to like really care more about bills. You know, I've really had to care more Same. about some things like that. And people be like, you're a one. And I'm like, listen, I'm just not, listen, I haven't I have thought to... about myself yeah. or like yeah. things I should go and do. Like, yes. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Oh my gosh. It's... Enneagram for life. It's helped us so much. It is part of how we've survived marriage. We have a little bag of tricks that I'm always like, here are all the tools that will help in your future. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, I am so grateful you were on this show today yes. to meet another one and to also just join you. If, if our listeners want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah. So probably the easiest place is Instagram. So it's at Abigail Ernesty, which, um, we can link it in the description yes. too. So y'all don't have to guess how my last name is spelled, but yeah, that's really honestly where I'm at the most on the internet right now. And in a few months I should have a blog that's up. And running too. Yay. So if you want to come Let's there. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're really, you're really, um, you're really, really informative on your Instagram page in terms of like what you're putting out for uh, listeners or subscribe. What do we call it? followers for followers? Yeah. Which which platform yeah. are we on? I mean, for the followers to grab onto, and I appreciate that about you. You you make it. Um, as simplified as you can. And, and I'm just really grateful for your voice in this space. I'm grateful that you shared just some of your story and what led you into this work. Like we need your voice at the table. So I'm very, very thankful for you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun, such a delight to talk with you guys. I'm sure that I will, I will see you in this work again. Yes. Enjoy your day in Waco. Well, it's all going to hit up everything that says Magnolia. (laughs) There you go. Go for it. (laughs) I love it. It's so fun. Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.